Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You sometimes feel like there's, there's something a little bit artificial about the way that we, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. I'm a big believer in Lectio Continua, which is this practice of, of going through in order a book of the Bible. But at the same time, historically speaking, you understand that when, for example, the, the epistle to the Romans, which we're working through now, was, was sent to the church in Rome, and they opened up that scroll and started reading, I'm pretty sure they didn't read the first two sentences and then say, oh, wait a second, let's just think about that. Don't, don't keep going. Let's, let's just pause and reflect on, on that opening. And, and, and if you would, please, let's dig into the etymology of the words that are used. Right? There are a lot of things that we do in preaching that, that aren't the way that people would ordinarily read a letter. And there are good reasons why we do this, but it's important also to remember that, uh, that these letters hold together, that the points that they make aren't just made like line by line, or word by word, but also there's a big picture. There's an, an overall trajectory. And that's the reason why I actually like to take a, a big chunk of text when preaching and, and, and work through that. I, I hate to divide it up too much. I hate the idea of, of you know, preaching half of an idea and not continuing through it. And yet that's exactly what we're going to be doing this morning. Last week, we started looking at Romans chapter 5. And Romans chapter 5 is, is a, a kind of, not a summary exactly, but it's, it's a capstone on everything that has gone before. All of the doctrine, all of the arguments that Paul has made, it all kind of starts coming together here, preparing us for the next section of the book. But last time we started chapter 4, we got two verses in, and then we stopped. So, We only looked at these words, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. If I keep going, I get to our text this morning and you immediately discover why it is that in this case, we really had to pause because Paul's about to say something that if you let him say it after what we've just read, you can't think of anything else because it's kind of a big thing. It's kind of a shocking thing. So as we keep going with verse 3 and finish the paragraph through verse 5, Paul says this. Remember, he set it up, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But then in verse 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. That is a big idea. That's something remarkable that Paul is saying. Of course, Paul's not the only apostle to speak this way. There are other apostles who talk in this language. James, for example, 
In James' epistle, he actually opens with this thought, count it all joy when you meet trials. People sometimes like to imagine that there was a lot of distance between Paul and James, the way they saw the world. But, but you can see they're tracking along similar lines. Count it all joy when you encounter trials. Peter does the same thing. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that we rejoice even though you have been grieved by various trials. So all of them linking the idea of joy and rejoicing to suffering, to trials, to testing. So that's actually not what's remarkable about what Paul says. It's not remarkable for an apostle to connect the idea of rejoicing to suffering. That's actually normal. That is the way they all talk. That's the usual way of speaking about these things. What's remarkable is how foreign this experience of rejoicing and suffering is for those of us who claim to be followers of Christ. Paul says, almost in passing, as an afterthought, not only that, but also this, we rejoice in suffering. And we read that, and it's like, wait a second, wait a second. We need to hear more about what you mean by that, because it sounds, sounds a little masochistic. It doesn't sound very good to rejoice in suffering. There's a simple explanation, though, for this difference of perception. The apostles know something that we have forgotten. They know something that we've forgotten, assuming that we ever knew it in the first place, because it's not something that we talk much about. It's not something that we preach much about. But here's how Paul explains it. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know something. We have some knowledge that makes us rejoice. What is it that we know? We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So our hope is not diminished by our sufferings, which is how that usually works. You hope in something, you don't get what you want, you suffer, there's pain, there's trial, and your hope shrivels and dies. But Paul says, no, for us, it's not like that. Our hope does not diminish because we suffer. Because of our sufferings, our hope increases. Why? Because through the Spirit, God's love has been poured into our hearts. So there's a chain here. There's there's a kind of sequence of events, a cycle to the way that this works, from suffering to endurance to character, to hope, suffering, endurance, character, hope. That's the way Paul describes it. James actually expresses the same idea, but he simplifies a little bit. So instead of four, you get three. You look at James 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the way James expresses it is testing leads to steadfastness. Steadfastness, faithfulness, leads to perfection or to wholeness, to shalom, as we talked about last time. That sense of wholeness, completion, well-being, the result of steadfastness. James says suffering is testing, and endurance 
is steadfastness. Perfection, wholeness, kind of combines Paul's ideas of character and hope. Because it talks about a formation of character, but a formation of character that has a a trajectory to it, an eschatological direction to it, a character that's being formed towards a future hope. And it's actually Peter who emphasizes that future hope the most in all of this. In 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's a lot here, but what I want to focus on is one thread in all of this, the way that endurance forms character, the way that endurance, steadfastness forms Character, or to put it another way, I want to contemplate the pain that makes peace. The pain that makes peace. Testing produces character. Testing produces character. That's not a new revelation. But in Greek, there's actually a helpful connection that you don't hear in English. Uh, I think I will say, generally speaking, that that if you are a, a, a good interpreter of English and you rely on the many tools that are available, most of what you could glean from fluency in the original languages is accessible to you through study. But occasionally there are things that are helpful to have pointed out. And I think this is one just because of the sound of the words. Sometimes when we're trying to make a point, the connectedness of two ideas, the fact that the words are connected helps to reinforce that. There's a connection here that you can't hear except in the Greek. So the word for testing is dokimian. Testing is dokimian, and character is dokime. Dokimian, testing, dokime, character. So when I say testing produces character, you can see the, the connection here. What we're saying is dokimian produces dokime. Dokimian, the process of testing, produces the outcome of dokime, character. That's how it works. That's how it works. Testing produces character. The principle is that your suffering is a trial. You must meet that test with endurance. And that endurance forms your character towards faithfulness. Now, testing doesn't produce faith. Testing reveals the existence of a faith that was there already. That's the way the testing works. Peter compares this to gold. He actually says that a tested faithfulness is more valuable than gold. Like gold will melt in the flame, but this will not. This faith will not. I have a friend who, a few years ago, in relation to the fact that, that he was convinced that the economy was, was in a nosedive and the world was about to plummet into a post-apocalyptic nightmare, he began preparing for the inevitable end of the world 
as we know it. And so he would share with me some of the measures that he was taking. One of the things that he got into was, was stockpiling precious metals, silver, gold, that sort of thing, so that once your paper money was worthless, he would have the last laugh because he would have all these little gold bars that he could trade with. Now, I counseled him because as a pastor, you give people advice. I said, you're stockpiling the wrong metal for the end of the world. You should be stockpiling lead. Bullets, you know, because then you can have whatever other metals you want. You know, it's an ancient principle, but, but he didn't listen. Well, the thing is, it turns out as the popularity of stockpiling metals has grown, so has the potential for fraud. Not everything that, that glistens is gold. Well, how do you test? How can you be sure that the little gold bars that you are stacking in your safe are actually real? So there's a way that you can do this. All you need is something to scratch the surface with and a little bit of acid. So you need nitric acid, which is this highly corrosive mineral acid, which also has strong oxidizing properties. So you take something, you scratch, you put a little scratch in the gold, and then you put a drop of nitric acid on the gold. And depending on how it reacts, you find out what it is that you have. If you put the acid on that scratch and the metal turns green, it's not gold. It's not gold. It shouldn't oxidize in that way. But sometimes it doesn't turn green. Sometimes you put the acid on the metal and you get a sort of milky color. And what that means is what you're looking at is sterling silver that has been plated in gold, which is more convincing than a lot of other substitutes. If you make your scratch and you apply your acid and the result is no change at all, you're dealing with gold. That's how you can tell. Now think of your sufferings and your trials. Because your sufferings and your trials function in a similar way. You have been scratched. And as if that wasn't bad enough, you were scratched and then acid was poured on the wound. And it hurt. There was pain. But the point wasn't the pain. The point was to prove the truth of what was being tested. A tested faithfulness, a real faith. That was the point of the trial, to demonstrate it. The point was to form your character towards faithfulness. But if you think about it that way, you do have to put these tests, these sufferings in a different context. Because the question is, who needs proof? Does God need proof that the faith that he gave you is real? He gave it to you. He already knows. He doesn't need proof. Who needs proof? You do. You do. We do. Our tested faithfulness is an encouragement, is, is a testimony to us all. I've gone back before again and again to uh, Henry V's St. Crispin's Day speech in the play by Shakespeare. And uh, I'm obsessed with the idea that in, in the plays of Shakespeare, there are all of these latent theological ideas that are really uh, worth unpacking and thinking about. But there's a moment in that speech. This is the one, uh, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It's, it's um, every movie you've ever seen where somebody has to give a motivational speech to convince 
people to go to war. It's all stolen from this one speech. This is like the original motivational speech. And, and it's a good one. And, and it really did convince a handful of English guys to go and whip an army of, of French knights, which I know doesn't seem like an impressive accomplishment in our post-World War II era. But, but back then, it really, really was. But there's a moment in this speech that I think can help to illustrate the way in which even our suffering can testify to faithfulness and be an encouragement to us and to others. And it's the way that Henry talks to his soldiers to encourage them. He imagines the future. So here we are in the battlefield. And and let's be honest, it looks like probably we're all going to get killed. But let's say we don't. Suppose some of us survive, then in the future, when those of us who survive are all old men, you're going to hold a party, a feast. You're going to invite all of your neighbors. And when they're there, he says, you're going to start rolling up your sleeves and revealing all of your battle scars, showing what happened to you on this day. And you will say, these are the wounds I had upon St. Crispin's Day. When you received them, it was painful. When you were shot with arrows and cut with swords, it hurt, and you would have rather not have that happen to you. But one day, you will boast in your sufferings. One day, you will show off your wounds and testify that you were there. These are the wounds I endured upon that day. Now, We follow after a Savior who boasts in his battle scars. Jesus Christ, who bears in his body the mark of the death blow that he endured. And we strive to follow after his example. He endured those wounds out of love. And as Christians, we follow after him. But what does it mean to follow after a battle-scarred Savior who suffered for that profound love. Sometimes it means, as Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that we share in his sufferings. And if you look at Philippians 3.10, you'll see when Paul talks about sharing in his sufferings, he's not talking about that as a necessary evil. He's not referring to it as this This bad thing that may have to happen so that a greater good can prevail, he's listing his aspirations. He aspires to share in the sufferings of Christ, just as he aspires to share in the resurrection. That's what it means to follow Christ. A character is formed in times of adversity and lost in times of prosperity. I know already that there are none of us here, uh, whatever your nationality, who are physically capable of singing the United States national anthem. It really can't be done. Many people try, and it never seems to work out. It's a tough song. As a result of that, whenever we hear it, we're usually focused on the technical challenges and not so much the words. But have you ever thought about what our national song is about? What character trait our national anthem is actually celebrating. If you go back and you listen to the words and you put the poetry together and think about what that means, you find out that when we sing our national anthem, we are not celebrating conquest. 
we're not really even celebrating victory. We're celebrating not being blown out of the water. We're celebrating enduring overnight. Right? The whole point is the exhilaration that Francis Scott Key feels in discovering that after a night of horrendous bombardment, the flag is still there. And he doesn't mean that it hasn't been shot down. He means it hasn't been taken down, which is what you do to surrender. They haven't given up, in other words. Our national character, at least judging from our national anthem, is a celebration of endurance. Tenacity, not giving up despite suffering. Whether or not that's a good reflection of our actual national character or not is something else. Um, This is a completely uh, unscientific observation. I'm taking two things that perhaps have nothing in common and combining them to make a cultural point. But, But I think maybe if you want to understand our national character Think not so much of, of uh, old glory and, and our flag was still there. Think more of uh, different fabric, uh, denim. For the last 30, 40 years, like no one has ever purchased a pair of denim jeans that the manufacturer hasn't pre-distressed in some way. They used to do that in the olden days. They would buy blue jeans and they were stiff and brand new looking. They didn't have whiskers or creases or holes in them when they were purchased. The only way to develop those features was by wearing them a lot. As any denim enthusiast can tell you, the the way to earn that look is to wear those jeans day after day, don't wash them, and just suffer in them. And eventually they'll look like everybody else's jeans looked when they bought them. We want the look. We don't want the experience. We don't want to have to go through what you go through to look like that on the end. We want the patina, the faux finish. But we don't want to have to show the endurance. And if we experience the kind of things in life that produce that endurance, we're kind of outraged by it. It doesn't seem right. Whether or not this is the character of our nation is one thing. I think it is certainly the character all too often of our church. The church in America bears the same stamp because it's been formed by prosperity, not by endurance. We don't regard suffering as something to rejoice in. We regard suffering as a sign that something has gone wrong. If people are suffering, it's because they lack faith. They're suffering, it's because they've somehow failed to please God. If we suffer, it's God's fault. God's doing something wrong. We tell ourselves God isn't delivering on what he said he would do. And when you say that, all you really do is reveal how little attention you've paid to what God has actually said. Because this is exactly the kind of life that he said you should expect. If you're following after Christ, who suffered for love. The encouraging thing in Paul's words, though, is not just that that suffering 
produces character, and that's good and should encourage you because we all want to have good character. If he stopped there, he would only be getting you as far as like a Stoic could get you. If you were to go to ancient Greece and, and find your local Stoic philosopher and say, hey, suffering produces character, he would say, yeah, I know. We know that. We preach it all the time. Paul goes farther than that, farther than just the production of character. The process doesn't end in character. It ends in hope. People who rejoice in suffering place a high value on endurance and character. Just as people who put a high value on strength and health rejoice in the pain of exercise. You don't want to do it. You don't want to finish the run. You don't want to be up this early in the morning, but you understand that the pain that you are inflicting upon yourself uh, will result in character. It'll result in strength. And if you value those things, you're willing to endure the pain. You understand that this pain produces peace, produces well-being. It produces wholeness. Through endurance, you enter a state of wholeness. But what Paul is talking about goes beyond that. He's not saying we rejoice in our suffering because it's good for our character and it makes us stronger people. He's not saying whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, so you should welcome death threats and, and, and snake bites and shipwrecks and that sort of thing. That's not the point. He's going farther than that. He could have said suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, period. But instead he adds character produces hope. Character produces hope. The reason that we struggle to reconcile suffering with our faith is that despite our official dogma, our hopes are still fixed on this life. Our hopes are not fixed on the world to come, but in this life. And so when we suffer, and it seems that those this life hopes will not be fulfilled, we are of all people most despondent. We don't rejoice in suffering because suffering repudiates our this life hope. That's actually what it's supposed to do, though. Part of the, the benefit of these trials is that it uproots our this life hopes and teaches us to look to the world to come, teaches us to put our hope in Christ to come. And in that way, character produces hope. Because the process that builds character shows us that it makes no sense at all to root our hope in this fallen world. When you suffer, how you respond says everything. When you are tested and tried, you can lose hope. You can lose hope in Christianity. Many people do. Or... As a result of this suffering and testing, you can shift the focus of your hope from this life to the next, which is what Christianity was telling you to do all along. In other words, suffering is the test that reveals whether your hope is where you say it is. Suffering is what reveals whether the faith, you, the, the faith that you confess is the faith that you believe. That should be a comfort to those of us who suffer because it helps us recognize that the suffering that we endure and the suffering that we see around us is not a sign that God has abandoned us. 
it doesn't mean that our hope is hopeless, that things have gone wrong. Suffering keeps us from directing our hope toward this life. And it should be an encouragement to those of us who are being tested, encouragement to endure, that, yeah, you will suffer. Yes, horrible, painful things will happen to you. That is inevitable. It's only the the fact that we have been blessed beyond all measure that allows us to deceive ourselves, to think that this suffering is not the norm. But when you suffer, endure, develop character, and continue to hope. That testing strengthens you. It matures you in faith so that you can endure to the end. I know it's hard to talk about rejoicing in suffering because it sounds like what we're saying is be indifferent to suffering, that we are surrounded by suffering. And and what I'm saying to you is is that the the way we should respond to suffering in the world is to, to do a little dance and pretend like it's not so bad. We should rejoice in that and essentially um, be in denial. It's what it sounds like, as if we're ignoring the significance of the pains of this life. But that's not really what I'm saying. That's not really what Paul is getting at. All that Paul is saying is the pains of this life, as bad as they seem, the suffering of this life, as much as you want to grieve it, you should realize that this is just a type and shadow of the suffering that is to come. This is just a hint, a taste of what alienation from God is like. A taste that we receive in this life to warn us against enduring it in the next. The real horror of suffering is not the pain of this life. It's the way that that pain points to a pain that is to come. But by the same token, the real glory of endurance is not the character that it produces in this life. It's the hope that comes, the assurance of blessing in the world to come. Because what Paul is saying is that where I began in Romans 1 talking about the wrath of God being poured out, now you can hope because of the love of God poured into your heart. There's a moment in the book of Revelation that I often refer to when we come to the table. It's the marriage feast of the lamb. Significant for our purposes is the way that the lamb is described throughout the book of Revelation. Like Jesus, when he's mentioned, is often characterized as the lamb who was slain. The lamb who was slain. The idea of the sacrificial lamb who bears in his body the the marks of the death blow. That's the way Jesus is depicted in the book of Revelation. So when you come to the marriage feast of the lamb, you think of the lamb, you remember this is the lamb who was slain. This is the lamb who went through such pain. The lamb who boasts in his wounds. When we boast in the wounds of Christ, we're boasting in the pain that produced our peace. But that celebration follows on the heels of a significant event. In order to get to Revelation 19, something first has to happen 
in Revelation 18. If you have your Bible and you flip there, you see in Revelation 18 described the fall of Babylon. Babylon the Great is fallen. Babylon is the city that symbolizes the city of man. It is the city of rebellion against God, the city that that, uh, sets itself up in opposition to the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And in chapter 18, it is finally overcome, finally vanquished. And the last line of chapter 18 says something about suffering. As the city is destroyed, plundered, it is decimated, leveled. You read these words, very last line, Revelation 18. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. The wounds of the lamb that he bears in his body are echoed and reflected in the wounds of his people. The prophets and the saints who were slain, whose blood was poured out in the city of man to testify to the goodness of God. And when that city was finally destroyed, what was discovered was the great sacrifice made by those people to testify to the truth. And in that moment, like as the the taste of that defeat, of the blood in the streets is in your mind, then you go to rejoicing. Then you go to Revelation 19, and the very next line reads, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In this life was suffering. In this life the blood was spilled of the prophets, of the saints, all who died, all who suffered in the name of Christ, so that that hallelujah could ring in the world to come. That's why we rejoice in our sufferings. Not because we like to suffer. Not because we're indifferent to the pain in this world. But because our hopes are not rooted here, but are rooted in the life to come, and are rooted in the work of the Lamb that was slain for the salvation of the world. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.